Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And today we are bringing you the case of the Licata? Licata? Licata family murders. Obviously, <laughs> not sure how to pronounce that name, but I'm interested to know what this is. All I told about her. All I told Trish about this is that I am ready to go on a rant, and she can either join the rant or buckle up for the ride, and that's all <laughs> she knows. So, I guess uh, grab your cocktail and uh, buckle up because um, this one's probably going to be uh, <laughs> grab, uh, grab quite your, a ride. Grab your cocktail or grab a little something to schmokety smoke. <laughs> that's a little hint to the rant. All right. Guess we will see you at the episode. another round of bartending with your bartender Trish and for today's drink I'm pretty much just going to talk about an alcohol that I just got and it's the new Bailey's s'mores and it's so good so good on its own it's amazing I tried to make a s'mores martini with it it turned out pretty good but still want to tweak it so we're going to work on that for y'all. Honestly, it was better on its own. Once you put the vodka with it, like, it just kind of lost some of the s'mores taste. I just, I really, I, I don't want to tell you to buy multiple things. If you want a s'mores cocktail, just buy the Bailey s'mores. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. Right now I have some of the Bailey s'mores and some Kahlua, like, in my glass, and it's so good. Like, so this is something, like, I, if you get, you can just pour it over ice, you can chill it, you could add it to, like, your coffee, your hot chocolate, something like that. It's just going to, it's just gonna, like, boost that up. It's so good. You taste, like, the marshmallow and the chocolate and the, even the graham cracker, I'd say. It's just, it's really good. And it's only 17% alcohol, so I mean, it's not like a very high, <laughs> it's not... It's Bailey's. Yeah, it's not something that's gonna like, knock you on your ass unless you like, you drink the whole bottle yourself, then maybe, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but definitely, if you find this, give it a shot. I know that they have a tiramisu one that I have my eye out for, because if you know me, tiramisu is my shit. Yeah. So, but Bailey's s'mores, if you see it, pick it up. It's so good. Basically, it's like chocolate milk. It, oh, so good. But I guess with that being said, we will kick you off to our episode. <clears throat> All right. So today we are going back to the 1930s. Woohoo. In Ybor City, Florida, to visit the Licata family. 
Okay. Specifically the night of October 16th, 1933, when police showed up to the family home to find Victor Licata and the rest of the family was slaughtered. Other than Victor. So Victor told police that he had a bad dream, and when he woke up, his entire family was dead. And that's when he contacted them. Victor continued to say that in his dream, his father, Michael, entered Victor's room, grabbed him, and pinned him against a wall. At the same time, his mother, Rosalia, ran into the room with a huge carving knife. His older sister and two younger brothers and some aunts and uncles were also there, and they were all laughing at him. Quote, my father held me on the wall, and my mother helped him cut my arms off. She then jammed wooden arms into his bleeding stumps. Jesus. And remember, this is a dream that he's having. Victor remembered being scared, as he should be. His arms were gone. I'd be scared, too. But at this point, when the cops show up, he's awake, and he's in fear for his life. Or, I'm sorry, back up, back up. So, Victor remembered being scared, and his arms were gone. I would be scared, too. Yeah. Awake now, but in fear for his life, he grabbed an axe, but said he seized a funny one that was flexible, as if it was made of rubber, and he hit his tormentors with it. The blows knocked them all out, but he insisted he did not kill any of them. When police found him cowering in the bathroom the following afternoon, he had both his flesh and blood arms firmly attached to his body and no memory of killing anyone. Just a memory of this dream. The bodies of his father, mother, sister, and youngest brother, who was eight at the time, were scattered around the house. All had been hacked to death with an axe. Reporters dubbed Victor the Dream Slayer. One of his four, one of his brothers, 14 at the time, was still alive when police arrived, but he died within a day. The final victim was the family's German shepherd. No. Mm-hmm. Victor was the... Ner- the uh, cannot speak. Victor was the ne'er-do-well son of a prosperous Italian family. His father owned two barber shops and was apparently well-liked and respected in the community. Victor, however, was unstable, a wild-eyed youth so crazy that his neighbors and family lived in fear of him. A year earlier, police had tried to enforce a lunacy petition to lock him up, which to me reminds me of Beauty and the Beast when they'd come in Try to take the dad away. But his parents begged to keep him at home, insisting they could give him better care than any institution could provide. Psychiatrists diagnosed him at this point with dementia praecox. And this is a term that is no longer used today. It is kind of equivalent to schizophrenia, but not really at the same time. So, dementia praecox means premature dementia. It is a psychotic disorder characterized by rapid cognition of disintegration, usually beginning in late teens or early adulthood. And so, like I said, this is not something that we really use as a term anymore. It's more associated with 
what we refer to as schizophrenia now, but that's not something that they really knew about in the 1930s. So now knowing that he was probably schizophrenic and knowing that he had this bad dream, it kind of aligns and we can understand him more than they understood him then. So it appeared to be in his genes. Four other relatives, an uncle, two cousins, and one of the brothers he killed were also insane. How they how they know that at this point, I don't know. Right. According to newspaper accounts, Victor had another demon. <laughs> he is a user of the marijuana. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. So 1930s, you know kind of where this is heading. So he is a user of marijuana, a weed that is said to cause insanity. I was insane long before I started smoking the weed. <laughs> smoking the weed. Um, but that is something that a lot of newspapers took to, and that is specifically what a caption in a newspaper, a local newspaper, quoted about Victor Licata. It also showed Victor with his large, pale eyes staring zombie-like at the camera, and I will have that picture on our social medias. The murders committed around midnight followed an evening spent drinking moonshine and smoking weed, according to Victor. There was no trial. Victor was quickly judged insane and sent off to the state hospital at Chattahoochee, where he might have faded into obscurity, a bad dream most people would like to forget. But his story captured the eye of Harry J. Anslinger, the first head of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, later came to be known as the DEA. <laughs> The Bureau was established in 1930 as Prohibition was having its last call. At first, it focused on heroin and cocaine, but Anslinger soon turned its, his attention to marijuana, a more widely used substance, which hopefully I can come back to in a later case, but let me just point out right here, right now, that the government was the original source of growing marijuana and hemp in the United States. And then they wanted to turn around and be like, no, you can't do that. So, that's that. I'll come back to that at a later date. That's not a part of today's story. <laughs> okay. But Victor's rampage was a perfect weapon for Anslinger's propaganda war on cannabis. Part of his collection of horror stories that became known as the Gore Files. Victor was not the only tale in, Ansling in Anslinger's arsenal. Still, it was one he frequently repeated as a sensational reminder of the drug's dangers. He included the murders in an influential article, Marijuana, Assassin of Youth, published in the American Magazine in 1937. Oh. Yes, Marijuana is the Assassin of Youth. <laughs> You're just living on the edge, aren't you? I am. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. I love living. I laugh in the face of danger. <laughs> oh, gosh. It was also part of his testimony to Congress that led to the federal law that effectively made marijuana possession and sale illegal. Fuck you. But why would we want to make money in the United States? Because they would rather keep arresting people for it. Yep. 
and keep the prison system alive because it is a current age form of slavery. Pretty much. I said what I said. In Florida, police found a youth staggering about in a human slaughterhouse with an axe he had killed his father, mother, two brothers, and a sister. Anslinger wrote in this book, Ordinarily a sane, rather quiet young man, he had become crazed from smoking marijuana. Yes, it was the marijuana, not the fact that a year before these crimes were committed that they tried to file a lunacy petition on him because he was mentally ill. I also find that it is rather problematic that in our country, the people that do fall into these categories of like criminal and mentally ill, they try to turn we, let me say we, because I'm a part of this, like you turn to drugs to like try to heal something inside of you or escape from something inside of you. And our country does not have systems set into place to help you with your mental health and your mental well-being. Nope. But they definitely have systems to catch you whenever you fall to your lowest place. Yeah. So. For decades, advocates of legalized marijuana have cast doubts on the idea that reefer madness led to the carnage of the Licata family. They point out that there was no proof that Victor had smoked that night. Another theory is that Victor didn't commit the killings at all and that it was actually a mob hit aimed at his father. And it was an Italian family. Remember that. Victor remained in the mental hospital until 1945. Then on October 14th, he and four other inmates sawed the bars off their cage and vanished. None of the guards heard a thing, and no one had any idea of how the prisoners got the hacksaw. It was clearly an inside job, but the authorities never identified the, the accomplices. Four of his fellow fugitives were picked up within days, but Victor Licata remained free for five years. Then in August 1950, he strolled into a waterfront restaurant in New Orleans, owned by his cousin, Philip Licata, 35. Philip wasn't exactly happy to see his long-lost relative. In the past, Victor had vowed to murder more family members if he ever got out. So, Philip was afraid of him, rightfully so, the way that you'd be afraid of any crazy man, and Philip actually contacted the government and was like, hey, my cousin is here, please come get him, and so that's how Victor was recaptured again, and that was August 1950, and unfortunately, in December of 1950, Victor died by suicide. He hung himself while he was in the mental hospital from, he like hung a bed sheet in his cell. So that is my story about the Lee Cotta case. One of the like main headliners in the war against marijuana. <laughs> and there are just like so many issues with this because one, it wasn't the marijuana, even if he did smoke it the night of. It wasn't that. The, the city knew that he needed mental health. His family knew that he needed mental help. But 
they also were like, we can provide better than this state can provide. So we would rather do it here. But not every family can afford that. And clearly it not did not work out in this case that it worked out for them in that way. But it wasn't the weed. No. First and foremost. <laughs> it's a fucking shame that in this country we still feel this way about cannabis. It is a very helpful tool. It is something that can help you if you're depressed, anxious, I mean, they've shown sick that, with cancer. Honestly, they've shown that like people that use like cannabis or like we like basically with like MS and like um, what does Michael J. Fox have? Uh, Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, that, it starts like, with a P. <laughs> right. I was like, they've shown that like it basically gives them their lives back. Like. Well, because it, like, relaxes your body and it relaxes your muscles. And I've talked about it on this show before, on on this podcast, about how I do. I smoke weed. I don't have a problem with it. And many of my friends can tell you that I use it as a medical tool because it helps with my depression. It helps with my anxiety. And I have PCOS. It really helps me with that. Like, especially whenever it comes time for my period. Like, it helps with my cramps and all these other things. And it is a tool that I use in my toolbox to help me with my mental health. Yeah. Can it be overabused? Have I overabused it? Absolutely. But so can alcohol. It's all the same. And I just think that, like, the more that we talk about it, the more that we can get over the stigma. And then on that note, I feel like this case is equally as important to talk about mental health. Because, especially back in the 1930s, seeking out therapy and relying on medicine to help you be a quote-unquote stable individual was absolutely unheard of. I'm sure his family, like, did not want him to have to rely on those things because even my mom's generation, like, you did not go to therapy. You did not really rely on Prozac and Xanax and things like that. So, imagining in the 1930s how even more unheard of that probably was, if we were more open to learning about and accommodating mental illnesses that would dramatically decrease a lot of the issues that we see in the world right now in my opinion would it is it a cure-all absolutely not there is no (laughs) cure-all but if we were more open and like able to provide therapy more often to people that actually need it and can't afford it not saying that his family couldn't afford it but just these days we would see such a change in this world such a change yeah and that is my little mini rant for today like i said this case is from the 1930s there's not a whole lot of information about it out there but i came across it looking for like southern weed crimes (laughs) i just wanted to talk about it today i guess i don't know But we hope you enjoyed this case, and we'll kick you off to the last call. All right. Welcome back to another last call. 
And for today's last call, I thought I would talk about one of our favorite Christmas movies, Elf. Hey. <laughs> I'm Buddy the Elf. What's your favorite color? Hello, Buddy the Elf. What's your favorite color? <laughs> and so I found a couple of fun facts. I don't know if I'm going to read them all, but we'll get through a good bit of them. And the first little fact about uh, Elf is that Jim Carrey was actually initially, like, set to play Elf. Wait, Buddy the Elf. And I was like, I love me some Jim Carrey, but Will Ferrell does such a great job. Agreed and agreed. Like, Ace Ventura and, like, Liar Liar are some of my all-time favorite movies ever. But Will Ferrell as Buddy the Elf, iconic. <laughs> uh, but yeah, apparently he was, um, it was like in early stages he was said to play Buddy the Elf. And then like, I guess Will Ferrell just kind of like became like this kind of comedy star. And they were all like, oh. Maybe we can get him to play. So yeah. I'm glad they did the switch. Not that I don't think Jim Carrey would be funny. But I don't think it would be the same movie. The second little fun fact is. Years before SNL or Elf. Will Ferrell actually worked as a mall Santa. <laughs> Santa! I wish. I know him. I wish. <laughs> Me. Can you imagine? This sucks, camel dicks. <laughs> uh, I'm just like, I like. Obviously, we wouldn't have known Will Ferrell, but like, still, like, could you imagine looking back at your pictures, like, with like Santa, and then being like, "Holy, Holy fuck, shit. that's Will Ferrell." <laughs> I got a picture with a stepbrother. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? <laughs> yep. Um, the next little fun fact is that the director, John... I can never say his last name. It's like Favrio or something like that. He makes multiple appearances in the... Uh, in the film... The most, like, noble one is he's the doctor. Another thing about the film is that the director also favored, like, practical effects on set of Elf. So it says, inspired by the Christmas specials he grew up with, um, he explained in the film's commentary track that he employed old techniques instead of CGI whenever possible. Although they did kind of use CGI for a lot of the snow, which is understandable. I mean, you gotta figure. Usually, when you're filming like fil like Christmas films, you're filming them in, in the summer, summer. <laughs> so you're not just gonna have snow lying around. And to go and make all that, and then make it look realistic at the same time, it's not always easy. So it's just easier to like CGI that shit in. 
There is a Christmas story cameo in Elf. Peter Billingsley, who played um, the Red Rider wanting Ralphie, popped in as Ming the Elf. So that just gives me a reason to watch Elf because I'm like, Ming, I was like, Gotta be when they're in the North Pole. He's gotta be like one of the elves working there. I have been rewatch. Well, I've been watching Big Bang Theory <laughs> for the first time all the way through, and Papa Elf is on Big Bang Theory. Yeah, he's one of the uh, he's the scientists. T- he's the TV scientist yeah. that Sheldon grew up idolizing. He's basically Bill Nye. <laughs> he literally showed up on the TV show. And I looked at Nate and I said, that's Papa Elf. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, what? And I said, it's Papa Elf. How do you not know it's Papa Elf? So if you've watched Elf, you know that at the beginning you have like baby Buddy the Elf. Mm -hmm. And that, well, the original baby Buddy was fired. Well, actually, both of them. Because the director hired twins to play baby Buddy and apparently when they started filming did they poop on themselves no they were not performing <laughs> they're babies <laughs> i don't know i'm but... not even a baby person and i'm like how do you fire a baby right um so it says instead of smiling and crawling as needed they cried relentlessly so i mean i get it same <laughs> So they got different, um, they got a brunette set of, like, triplet girls, (laughs) actually, to come in and play Buddy. (laughs) Uh, In an early version of Elf, Buddy was actually bullied. Um, It says, in first drafts, Buddy's decision to seek out his dad was in part because he was being hassled by actual elves for being different. Which I feel like is not that different from what they ended up going with. Because like he is kind of like questioned like, you're not a real elf. There's no way. Apparently there is a deleted scene of like elf hockey. Which I want to watch. And there's actually like a clip. But I haven't watched it. So I'll have to look at it later. (laughs) But hockey is one of my favorite sports. So like. And I know Will Ferrell kind of plays it. So like I want to see what they did. (laughs) All I can think of is Blades of Glory. (laughs) Of course. So Elf is set in New York. But it was shot on multiple different locations they did use new york when it like counted and like when they needed that new york look but just know that not all of elf was shot in new york boo sorry boo uh macy's stood in for gimbals in elf which i feel like you can we look and just know <laughs> Macy's in New York City is one of the few places I've been. Of course. 
There's a wooden escalator in there. A yeah. wooden escalator. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of it on my Facebook. I'll show of you course. later. Uh, that was back in the day before, you know, we we knew what was cool for internet etiquette. So I have like three different Facebook albums dedicated to my New York trip with 60 photos each. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, one of the other little fun facts is, so... James Can plays the dad in Elf. Not not Papa Elf, but like dad, dad. the dad. And Will Ferrell actually broke him in Elf. <laughs> so the Academy Award nominated star of The Godfather was hired to play Walter in, par- in part because the director wanted a stern persona to play against Ferrell's giddy buddy. And Kane took the comedy of Elf seriously. He knew it was crucial for Walter to be annoyed, never amused, but his by his supposed son's antics. <laughs> Which I mean, come on. I would break every scene. <laughs> I would, I would. I'm I'm gonna be honest. I would not be able to film with Will Ferrell. Period. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> not at all. But it go- it says. But when it came to the blood test scene where Buddy bellows when pricked by a needle, Kane cracked. And he goes, "If you watch closely, you'll see he turns away from the camera so not to ruin the take." So now I have to watch and see that. <laughs> Uh, um, for the famous little jack-in-the-box scene, you know, when he's the toy tester and he's, mm-hmm. like, it goes, Will Ferrell went method for that <laughs> <laughs> uh, Can't stand him. The anxiety edged on Ferrell's face in those scenes is real. Rather than standard jack-in-the-boxes that would pop at the song's end, these were remote-controlled by the director. Oh, my God. That explains why the one, he's like, he's like, relaxes and then it pops. He's like, I, oh, my gosh. That's too funny. The epic burp in Elf is not real. Well, it's real, but it's not done by Farrell. It's done by a famous voice actor. (laughs) And um, the voice actor is best known for being the voice of Brain from Pinky and the Brain. So, I mean. Didn't know that. Yeah. So we know Elf is a Broadway musical right now. And it's one that. I would love to see, but also I'd be like, I want Will Ferrell. <laughs> so the famous uh, Throne of Lies scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was actually shot in one take, which I have no idea how. I don't think you could make it any better. Like, it had <laughs> to have been one go or no. Right. It says, due to a tight budget and having little time to rebuild... 
such an intricate set, the scene was filmed in one take. Thankfully, the scene where Buddy the Elf faces off against Small Santa didn't need to be refilmed. <laughs> you sit on a throne of lies. Uh, and the last little fact, which is very sad for me, Will Ferrell has no intention of ever making a sequel. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's sad, but also I'm like, no. I get it because sequels are usually never as good. What the fuck is up with this new Santa Claus series? I don't like, know. the third one was horrible. You should have left it at Santa Claus 1 and Santa Claus 2. Fuck that shit. You go, Will Ferrell. You go, Glenn Coco. You go. <laughs> but it says he turned down $29 million to star in the sequel. Good. I'm like Jesus, where would you go from there, though? I don't know. Where Where would Elf Two go from there? But of course, Buddy you the know, Elf and Zoe Deschanel living in the North Pole. Yeah, I don't know. But they uh literally, he of course had to you know make a joke out of it, and he was like, I don't think people want to pay to see me squeeze back into the Elf tights. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> would. I I would have paid. I would still pay to see it. I'm just saying. Okay, so I got, I've got it. Elf 2. Buddy the Elf becomes Santa Claus. And Zoe Deschanel is Mrs. Claus. Oh, gosh. That's the only place you yeah, can go. That's about it. But, yeah. Those are my little fun facts about Elf, which, like I said, it's one of my favorite, like, Christmas movies. Obviously, Christmas Story is just, it's up there. It's one of my favorite. It's one that my uh, mom won't let me and my sister watch around her because we will quote it nonstop. But I feel like Elf is the same way. For her. So, are you gonna watch that series that just came out? I've heard it's not bad. Okay. So I might. That's another one that I'm like, why the fuck would you come back and? I might give it a shot. See how it goes. All right. All right. Well, we would love to hear your favorite Christmas movies. Let us know on our socials. We have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. They are all tequila she wrote across the board. You can find our case references there. You can find our cocktail recipes. You can also email us with any case suggestions, cocktail recipes. If you want to chit-chat about anything and all things Christmas, we are here for <laughs> it. Tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have our Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You get ad-free episodes and you get a bonus episode. And then if you pay a little more, you get like even more bonus content. Sloan does a Rooney in Paradise. I do a Haunted series. So it's whatever you want out of it. You get, you get what like you basically sign up for. Sign up for. So, and... We are open for suggestions over there. Just, you know, choose an email or a message on something. We'll look at it, see what, see what we can do. But easiest way to find us there is by going to patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our socials, find our link tree, click Patreon, and it should send you directly to our page. If you're struggling... Let us know. We will try to direct you there. And yeah. Guess with that being said, we will see you next time. 
Thanks for riding on the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot. <laughs> I was like, I know what to say. It just wouldn't connect from brain to tongue.